You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. I invite you to take your scriptures, if you have a Bible with you, or if not, find one in a seat in front of you. Turn again to the book of Joshua, where we'll be studying again. We are moving on to chapter 11. So find Joshua 11. While you get there, we'll look at a picture from last week. Uh, This one, I have to show, it's from my niece. McLaren was here last week. So uh, anyway, she drew this. She calls me Munkle. I don't know where that, oh, because I'm an uncle and I'm Michael, so Munkle. So to Uncle Munkle, uh, (laughs) there you have it. You can call me, I guess you can call me that. So uh, she's got in the center Jesus from McLaren, and I love this, and uh, uh, appreciate her. We looked at the certain one, when things seem uncertain last week, we were talking about the certain one, and that is, in fact, Jesus, the one who calms storms, the one who the fullness of deity dwells, as Milt read about in Colossians, Jesus. So may our hope be in him. Well, we're moving on in Joshua in, in chapter 11. I'm going to read just through verse 15. We'll tackle the chapter, I think, in two weeks here. So let me read from God's Word, Joshua chapter 11, verse 1 through 15 here. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Kinnerot, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth, Dor, on the west to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom, to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephot, Mayim and eastward as far as the valley of Mitzpah, and they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, 
And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Let me pray for us again today. Lord, we have your word before us. Lord, you tell us in 1 Corinthians, you give revelation to us by your spirit. You reveal things to us. So we pray now for your spirit to reveal through through this seemingly military story of destruction and kingdoms and names that we're unfamiliar with, places we're, uh, for the most part, unfamiliar with. But we know who you are. But Lord, maybe we haven't remembered like we should. So Lord, show yourself. May we remember your greatness and the God behind the command and then to live for you. So guide our time today in your word. We pray your blessing by your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Joshua, had a, he had a real and overwhelming battle on his hands here in the text of what we've read. And I hope you don't mind reading through it all. I could just go through, and sometimes we do just go through sentence by sentence, I want to do this to read all of it so that you're already familiar and now we're kind of going back into study. And sometimes it's that second, third, or tenth, or whatever look that finally we go, oh, that's what's going on. So hopefully you're familiar and now we come back and we look at it a little bit more. Last week we saw that God fought for Israel as they took king after king, city after city in the southern regions of what we know as the land of Israel. Uh, One victory, though, for them, however, does not mean victory forever or rest forever for them. It doesn't mean all is calm and peaceful. For this we see here today, another battle was brewing just right on almost the heels of the last one. Barely time to recoup, it would seem, at least in the text. But isn't this kind of how it is? One victory, even for us, one victory in the Lord on on one particular day, or a certain sin you have victory over, or maybe there's a moment of victory in some spiritual discipline. I got up early this morning, I prayed, read my Bible, I'm fasting, I'm certain sorts of disciplines, shared the gospel with someone, and yet the moment passes and perhaps a new conflict comes in, a new struggle takes its place and comes back even against us. And you and I, like Joshua, we're faced with the daily challenge and joy. I want to hear there's a daily challenge of being a disciple of Jesus Christ and a joy, but a daily challenge of this life called discipleship, following the Lord. We are redeemed followers of the King of the universe. We live in the midst of an unclean people, and, and we still, in our own hearts, we battle our own flesh and sin, along with Satan's lies, him as an adversary. So we want to turn, return to our text and again look at what's going on here at this, this encampment, this present enemy amassing itself against Israel in verses 1 through 5. There are many kings, many kingdoms listed here all over the place. It seems mainly to be the northern half of Israel, I think is the, the direction here of where we're at. And they're called to gather together to fight Israel. The call to do this. And the ringleader of this, the one that's doing the calling, well, that's Jabin. That's the guy right off the bat. That's Jabin, king of Hazor. 
And verse 1 tells us that Jabin had heard something. I mean, this chapter starts right on the heels of 10 when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard. He heard something. I think he heard of Israel's victories. And he sent these messages out to all these other places. And we've seen already in the book of Joshua this idea of hearing. They had heard kind of over and over again. One king or an enemy, they hear of the victories of Israel. Either one or the two, either their hearts melt or like Gibeon, they come and try to make a covenant. That's not too often, very uh, kind of one-off time. But here we see them, they hear and they say, let's gather our forces to fight. Let's gather together. I've got a map here just to show you, and we can leave this up for a little while. Again, front row, you've got, you can really read this. So wonderful up here. Back, sorry. Um, part of this, where is it here? We still have some of these in the back on the bulletin table. If you want one of these to kind of, there's a couple of the cities even listed on that. Sometimes you want to pick one of those up or you have it in your Bible. This is kind of the northern half of what we're looking at. Some of these towns in here. There's my pointer. We'll just look at one of kind of where this battle could be. It's hard to nail down just where exactly are the waters of, of uh, Merom here. At least the ESV Atlas study by whatever has them right in here. You'll notice Sea of Galilee. So we think of Jesus' ministry Nazareth, all that up here. So that's kind of this northern region that we're in. And here, at least to them, here's where the battle took place in this place. I've seen, I don't know, you try to read and narrow it down, it's, it's hard to find it exactly. But that gives you an idea. But verse 4 gives us, the reader, something of the flavor of what this looks like. And verse 4 says, And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. The writer wants us to have a picture of the opposition. Encamped against Israel, really an overwhelming force. So much so like the sand on the seashore. Think about us in our own lives, our ever-present enemies as well what what about us it's commonly called maybe our enemies called the world the flesh and the devil maybe you've heard those phrased together before think of our own enemies that encamp against us the allurements of the world they can seem a pretty formidable foe when it's got sugar-coated enticements like covers of magazines or websites or the false promise of what happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas. The allurement, enticements, and they can even come to those who've been born again where we're not yet glorified like we will be one day with Jesus. And our flesh, our own flesh, can still seek and desire that which is not of God. Satan, too, is our adversary. First Peter 5.8 Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So it would seem as Satan gets wind of the, maybe the conquering of sin in a believer's life or of one's greater consecration. This week, I'm gonna, I want to grow in the Lord. I want to do this. I want to go forward in the Lord. He too gathers his forces to come against the growing one. Seems like an overwhelming army. So it would seem in our own lives. 
Look then, as we go back to the text, look at verse 6. So there's all this description, and then verse 6. And this is the first voice Joshua hears, and it's from the Lord. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Don't you love the writing here? Just think on that. What is, what's, the, what's going on here? All these kingdoms, verses 1 through 5, place by place. Verse 4, how many like the sand on the seashore. And then there's the voice of the Lord that speaks into the scene of this overwhelming army and says, do not be afraid. Some of you just need to hear that this morning. Do not be afraid. Why? God answers that here to Joshua. Look at, um, we continue. Yeah, God in this, he answers, do not be afraid for tomorrow at this time. I will give over all of them. God is the one behind. Why not be afraid? He's the one behind. The decisive cause, if you will, behind the victory. It's God's victory. It's not Joshua's, it's God's, and he will give them over. A.W. Pink, whom I quoted before as we've gone through this study, he says this, the divine promises, divine promises of God, the divine promises are not only comforting pillows on which to rest our weary heads, but cordials, and I think by this he means some sort of maybe medicine, they're cordials to strengthen They're spurs to move us on. They're encouragements for us to press forward along the way. Arguments for us to make use of in prayer. The divine promises are the food of faith. And faith is for producing good works. A wonderful way of putting the divine promise. Think of the promises of God. Even just write this one. Do not be afraid. Joshua to sit there and do not be afraid. All right, I can just sit back. Do not be, listen, the divine promises are the food of faith and faith is for producing good works, for going. So what must Joshua do? He's got to hamstring some horses and burn some chariots. That's what God says. Hamstringing. Something along the lines from best I can understand from reading, cutting off, you know, they didn't have guns to, to shoot the horse. So hamstring, cut the, I don't like the, tendons, the muscle, the hamstring of the horse, make it lame, do that, burn the chariots. So God, in giving the victory, he's not calling Joshua away from any of his duties or commands, but he is promising his provision for Israel, or Joshua, as Joshua fights, as he goes. Hamstring their horses, burn the chariots. So God's provision is in line with God's promises for God's purposes. And I think that's important for us here. What's the purpose? Joshua's obedience was not some sort of act to get what Joshua wanted. I want these cities. This is all the territory. I want to be this great, known as this great leader. It's not that. In fact, what Joshua wanted by following God's commands is what God wanted. And therefore, God gave to Joshua the victory. So Joshua was about fulfilling 
God's purposes and not his own. So what happens? That's we find in verses 7 through 9. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merim and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them, chased them as far as great Sidon and these other places. Misrephot, Mayim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mitzpah. They struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. So they come upon this great horde and they have total victory because the Lord gave their enemies into their hand. And verse 9 says they in fact hamstrung the horses, and they burned the chariots. We might ask here, weren't these great tools maybe that Israel could use in the next battle? I mean, you could use a horse and a chariot. How much better to have one of those? Let me translate that for 2019. It'd be like going to the enemy and seeing that they had a bunch of F-16 fighter jets or right, the new one, F-22 Raptors, whatever, and going up to those, and instead of getting in and using the F-16, you slash their tires, right, so they can't go anywhere. That's kind of a 2019 equivalent, perhaps, of hamstringing their horses. In other words, they're to not use them. They're to not take them for themselves. And I think there's a lesson here for them and us. Even in this act of obedience of Joshua, that God's power alone is enough for the battle. And if he is behind the use of a sword and no horse or no chariot, then that's how he will have the victory. Psalm thirty-three, seventeen: The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. How many war horses are we looking to and saying, that will save me? It won't. Something better. So much better than amassing horses, Joshua obeys and he does as God commands. Now I'm going to read verses 10 through 15 again and I want you to listen to something as I read through it. So put your ears on, put your hearing ears on. I want you to listen for the phrase, just as. There's repetition here. We want to listen to that. You're going to hear just as Moses commanded Joshua, so on, this phrase, just as. And it's, it's answering, speaking to an idea of how. How did Joshua act? How did Joshua conquer? How did Joshua go about the calling of God? So listen for it as, as I read through here. And Joshua turned back, so verse 10, and Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. Let me just pause. Do we have our map up here? Can we put it up real quick, guys? Okay. Just to give you an idea, um, if this is Merim, I think the Mayim, Mishripot, Mishripot, Mayim's over here, Sidon up here. Maybe they came back over here. Uh, there's Hazor right in there. So think about this. This is kind of where they've come. So they've kind of, some will say they've kind of done this clockwise loop and they're back to this place. That gives you an idea just where we're at. Okay. Let's continue. Verse 11. Still listen for just as. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, in Hazor, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured, struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction. 
just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on the mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. We looked at Hazor on the map. The the one who instigated this conglomerate rebellion was Jabin of Hazor. And verse 10 informs us he was the head of all these kingdoms, and so Joshua strikes the head. And he strikes it severely. None are left that breathe, and they burn Hazor with fire. And yet verse 13 tells us uh, that none of the cities on the mounds uh, were burned. I'm thinking mounds, maybe thinking of fortified cities here. None of those they burned. And we might ask, why not? We're going to look at the just as in a little bit. But why not burn them all? Why not burn these places, burn all of them? Here's just my thought. When Israel would settle in this land, they're, they're taking over the land, their inheritance, they're going to settle in this land. Why not spare these cities with their fortifications on the mound so that Israel, when they come in, they can dwell in security by the means of these cities. So in other words, I think these cities, we can see them maybe being recycled into Israelite cities in which they could dwell. They, they utterly destroyed the people, but not necessarily burning every mound, every city. But in all this, all this, to look at what as to look at in here, the just as, the burning of Hazor, the devoting to destruction, and even leaving of the mounded cities and not burning them. All of these, and then we read, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Just as command. Charles Spurgeon says, faith and obedience are bound up in the same bundle. He that obeys God trusts God, and he that trusts God obeys God. Joshua had faith and played out by his obedience. And his obedience was an act of his faith. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of him by faith, having turned from your sin the cross of Jesus, then the call on your life, on my life, is to be a just-as-God-commanded believer, to be just-as type people. If you say you have faith, then you must obey. I want to look at a couple places on this idea of commands, obedience. So first, as we move towards the New Testament, Psalm 119. So head to Psalm 119, verse 9. If you'll go there. 1 of the longest psalms here that has much of language about the commands of God. So in particular, Psalm 119, uh, verses 9 through 16, I'll read. And I want you to think about this idea of doing just as God commanded. Being this just as God commanded type Believer, And here's what Psalm 119, 9 through 16 says. 
How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will delight in your statutes. These don't sound like the kind of rote, kind of, if I have to, I guess I'll obey kind of statements, do they, about God's commands. The psalmist delights in God's commands. So what makes the difference? How can we delight in the commands of God? How do we obey when faced with the pressures of an ever-present, overwhelming enemy of the world or the flesh or the devil? And I want to take us to a passage here that may seem counterintuitive. I think it did to those speaking to Jesus, but a passage that gives us hope in our own battles and lives. And so let's turn lastly then to John chapter 6. So keep going to the New Testament, John chapter 6. In particular, verse 25 is where we'll start. John 6.25, if you want to head there. A little context since we're going, whoa, we're going from Joshua, you know, 1400 some years later in fast forward to Jesus day. This is right after the time of Jesus feeding the 5000. That story is recorded here. This, the same crowd finds him at Capernaum. Now, actually, as we looked on that map, not very far, same region as where we're thinking about that Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, uh, in this same area in the north. Here's what John 6, then 25 uh, through 40, I'll read for us. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? There's the question. What do we got to do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never 
thirst. Remember what we read, Isaiah 55, come to me, all you who are, come, come. Come, you are hungry and thirsty. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. There's victory. There's hope. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. If we are to delight in God's commands, we must be first drawn to the bread of life. To do the works of God is to, what did it say? Believe in Jesus. And he does this by his grace, opening our eyes, regenerating our hearts, so we desire him and believe on Jesus. And so those who in Christ who abide in Christ by faith, will then, right? Faith and obedience are tied. You abide in Christ by faith. You will live Christ-like lives of obedience. Jerry Bridges says this. He says, God does not give us His power so that we might feel good about ourselves. He gives us His power so that we can obey Him for His sake, for His glory. Remember Joshua? It wasn't Joshua's glory. It was for the glory of God. Any delight we have to do God's will does not come from us. It comes from the work of the Spirit of Christ who changes dead man's hearts. So there is victory. There's daily victory, not in a war horse, not in ourselves, but a victory in Christ by His Spirit. Peter, to, to go on from where I read earlier in 1 Peter 5, He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Then he says, firm in your faith. Who's your faith in? In Jesus. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you, to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our victory has already been won by the work of Jesus on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. We're going to celebrate in a little bit with communion. It's a victory that spurs us on to, therefore, delight in the commands of our Heavenly Father. Prepared and willing to obey even if it doesn't make sense. Servants, to be servants of the Lord who will do just as God commanded to be done. I pray that's who we are. I want to invite the worship team to come on up as we close out this portion. We're going to sing a one song about the blood of Jesus before we partake in communion today. Before I pray, if you have a bulletin in front of you, you'll notice I don't get to this often, but when I can, I try some questions for the dinner table. Let me just encourage you families, whoever, where you're around at the dinner table, to look these questions up. And 
and interact with your kids or your family or those around the table to interact and, and go a little deeper. There's some questions there. Maybe you have your own questions you want to discuss. But use the dinner table as a place to continue the teaching and to proceed in that. Let me pray and then we'll sing before communion. Lord, thank you that we <laughs> we have a message, a, a message to preach that is it's not based on our doing and our works to gain our salvation. You have done the glorious work on the cross and we're going to celebrate it here in communion. All praise and all glory and all dominion to you, Lord, for what you have done. The victory is yours. But you give us feet, feet of faith, hands of faith, eyes of faith to move forward, to go about your business, to be the means, to be instruments in your hands in this world. Lord, where we face challenges, overwhelming enemies, may we believe again on Jesus and rest in our accomplished and ever-living, everlasting Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us this kind of hope in the midst of enemies. We pray, Lord.